We read in God's inspired word this morning from Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life 
by Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning, we turn to Lord's Day 3 of our Heidelberg Catechism. Last week, I was, and I hope you also were able to say with just a little more conviction of soul that my only comfort in life and death is that I belong in body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because the brightness of the glory of that comfort shone a little more clearly as I was given to see again my own misery and the black background against which the brightness of that glory of our salvation shines. And as the law of God stood before us as the source of the knowledge of that misery, we confess that our misery is this, that I am prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. Having seen and understood our misery and the fact that it's rooted in ourselves and our own wicked natures, the question becomes this which is set forth in Lord's A3. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. But God created man good and after his own image in true righteousness and holiness that he might rightly know his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence, our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed, we are except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So the question we stand before this morning is, what is the root cause of that misery that is ours? Where lies the beginning and the cause of the fact that I am sinful? And what's the cause of the fact that all with whom I come into contact are sinful? And as is plain from history, that all men have always been sinful. And it's a, in its approach to this, to this question, the instructor in our catechism proceeds logically. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? If not, with what nature did God create man? And whence comes this depravity of the human nature? 
the correct answer to this question distinguishes the Christian who maintains the Reformed faith from all other variations of biblical interpretation over against all the various views that are individualistic in their teaching. The scriptures and our Reformed faith emphatically reject the individualistic approach and emphasize a common organic solidarity of the human race. In connection with Lord's Day 3, and especially from the viewpoint of Romans 5, as well as other texts, I call your attention to the cause of our misery. We notice, first of all, a perfect creation. Secondly, a willful disobedience. And finally, a common corruption. The instructor introduces the matter by asking the bold question, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? And the answer is an emphatic denial. By no means. Any blame of God must immediately be removed. Because God created man a perfect creation. When God saw everything that he had made, he rendered an immediate judgment. Behold, it is very good. God created man good. And that goodness of man consisted in this. He was created in the image of God to glorify and praise his maker in the service of his kingdom. That's how God created man. That doesn't mean that man was or is the image According to Hebrews 1 verse 3, Christ, in distinction from us, is the image of the invisible God. We bear the image. Christ is the image, precisely because he's the second person of the Holy Trinity. You never read of the creature that he is the image of, of God. Man is an image bearer of God. No matter what becomes of man, whether he shows forth that image of God in its beauty and glory, or turns it into the very opposite and reveals the image of the devil, you can always distinguish man from all other creatures as a creature who ought to show forth God's image. Always he remains a personal, rational, and moral being who ought to live in covenant fellowship with the living God. Now you notice, I just made a distinction between man as an image bearer and man as actually bearing that image. The virtues of the image of God in man are 
described explicitly in the Catechism as true righteousness and holiness, and by way of implication, true knowledge of God, that he might rightly know his Creator. And that contents of the image of God in man are taken explicitly from Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. So the apostle instructs us there that believers have so learned Christ and been so instructed in the truth as it is in Jesus that they are renewed in the spirit of their mind and put on the new man which is created after God in righteousness and true holiness. And in the admonitions he gives to the churches at Colossae, Those admonitions are based upon the truth that they have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man which which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Colossians 3, 9, and 10. So we see that Scripture presents man's redemption and deliverance as the restoration of the image of God in him. The image which is characterized by true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. It's that image of God in man that characterized man at the beginning. According to his holiness, Adam consecrated himself, his whole being, to God and God's service in love. He delighted in the living God and his fellowship and favor. And Adam was righteous, not with an imputed righteousness such as we are, nor with a righteousness he acquired, but his righteousness was that virtue of his nature by which he was always in harmony with the will of God. To do the will of God, to live as one who loves God, was his delight every moment. We can't even imagine that, can we? Even as those recreated after the image of God, renewed by the Holy Spirit, we Because of the misery of our natures, we can't even imagine that. Someday we shall. Someday. And the knowledge that Adam had is a knowledge that we will not have until we see God face to face. Adam immediately and spontaneously knew God, not only as God spoke to him directly, but through the revelation of God all around him. Adam could look at a tree and know God. He could see what God revealed of himself in that work of his own hands. And so it was with all the creation. Adam knew what the speech of God was through the lion and through the honeybee through the tree and through the flower. 
We know only a few things faintly as we look at them through the eyeglasses of the scriptures. We know, for example, that the plant life reaching up toward heaven symbolizes the creation as it reaches toward the light, groaning and travailing for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we know that because of what we read in Romans 8. But we know these things only through the Scriptures because it's only in this light that they speak of our redemption. Adam knew everything intuitively. And through that knowledge of God, he had the living fellowship and friendship of the Most High God. That was life to him. God created man good, capable of serving the Lord his Creator, capable of consecrating himself and all things to the living God, capable of ruling in righteousness as the king's servant, of God in the creation, and and thus to live in eternal happiness, glorifying and praising God. But there's more to that perfect creation. There was a purpose for which God created man in his image. God, in sovereign freedom, desired to live with man in the, in the life of friendship and fellowship. Fellowship is possible only on the basis of of a likeness. A dog might be your companion, but he's not your friend. You can't communicate with the dog and tell the dog your problems and expect him to respond. We might love our little children in the Lord, and we do, but only after they grow up and are more our equals are we, do we become friends to them. Friends requires a likeness. That relationship of friendship between God and man, which relationship, according to Scripture, is the covenant, that covenant relationship is possible only because man was created after the image of God. So God formed the whole nature, and in a creaturely way, man looked like, talked like, had a mind and will like God from a spiritual point of view. And on the basis of of that likeness, God and man were friends. God, always the friend's sovereign, man always friend's servant, but man was so created that he could fill the place God had appointed for him. A perfect creation. And notice, I said, and the Catechism teaches that man was created good. Not just Adam. God 
created one man. And in that one man, he created the whole human race. So that you and I were literally created in him. When Paul stood on Mars Hill and preached to the Athenians, he set forth the creator God who hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Acts 17 verse 26. Not that we were personally created in Adam. Our persons come from God, but our natures were created in Adam. Out of that one man, the whole human race developed organically. To illustrate again that organic idea, Sometimes my wife will take a cutting from a plant and root it in the soil. That cutting can be a picture of Adam. From that cutting, a new plant develops and grows. In that one cutting was the entire plant. But it has yet to develop and grow. So in Adam was the whole organism of the human race. Out of the one man, the whole human race developed organically. God created man good and after his own image. In true righteousness and holiness that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. So the question follows. Whence then comes this depravity of the human nature? And the answer is this. From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Without going into the scriptural account of temptation and the fall, this time through the catechism, I would have you note that that first act, by that first act of sin, Adam corrupted his whole nature. Sin as I have pointed out repeatedly, is not just a matter of the will and of the deed. The first sin corrupted the whole nature so that Adam's nature became totally depraved. And from a practical point of view, it's important that we understand that I would remind you of what we saw last week. The question is not a matter, therefore, of what you do. It's a matter of what you are, who you are. When we pray, we must pray for forgiveness, not only for those specific sins that have marred us in thought, word, and deed, 
we have to pray for forgiveness for our sinful natures as well. Our depravity is not merely in what we do, but in what we are. Adam corrupted his whole nature. And it was not so that Adam shifted his nature in reverse so that he could then shift it back into forward by repenting. When he put the gear of his nature into reverse, the gear stuck. And he couldn't move it out of reverse. And the reason is that the punishment of sin is death. God had said, the day that thou eatest thereof, the, of this, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. The purpose of that tree was to teach Adam that he must live within the covenant fellowship of God antithetically. He must say yes to what God says yes to and no to what God says no to. And as a responsible being, when Satan came to Adam through the woman, Adam chose. He was free to choose. No, he was not independently free as God is free, but he was morally free. Adam wasn't free in the highest sense. In the highest sense, freedom is that we cannot sin anymore. That will be our freedom in heaven. But in the moral sense, Adam was free. There was nothing compelling him to do what was contrary to the will of God. Adam didn't stand between God and Satan, so that he had to choose between the two, he faced God. But he had the power to turn around and face the devil. And when he said yes to Satan, he turned his back on God. He made Satan his friend. He became the follower of Satan. Even claimed Satan's fatherhood. And could not and would not turn to God again. And immediately Adam received the death sentence that God had pronounced. Just as God kills the fish when it departs from the sphere of the water, so with man. What was that death sentence? It's more than physical death. It's eternal death. More than the end of all all physical life and existence, That death is spiritual corruption. Everlasting death. In that sense, Adam did not die 
930 years later, the very sentence of God was executed that very moment. So that all the days of his earthly sojourn became days of abiding in the valley of the shadow of death. That's the unchangeable law of God. The soul that sins, it shall die. You see, that's why it doesn't doesn't even make sense to speak of common grace. Soul that sins dies. When Adam moved from the from the sphere of innocence and fellowship with God, he, he moved into the sphere of wrath. All our days are passed away in the wrath. Psalm 90. And that nature that Adam corrupted was the human nature. You see, people of God, why we need Jesus. There's no life apart from him. The Catechism is speaking not merely of the corruption of the nature of our first parents, it's speaking of our nature. Through the fall and disobedience of our first parents, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Over against all who teach the error that the natural man can do good in the sight of God, even if it's only in the civil sphere. Scripture teaches so clearly, Romans 3 is only one example, that man is totally depraved. His whole nature, heart, mind, will, all his desires and inclinations as they they come to expression through this present corrupt body, His whole nature is at enmity with God. And if the heart is perverse so that it's incapable of loving God and is enmity against God, if the mind is so corrupted that it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, Romans 8 verse 7, if the will is so perverted ethically that so in the bondage of sin it can never determine to do good, if the desires and inclinations are so defiled, they can only lust after evil, then it should be evident even to the most simple that a man who has such a nature cannot do anything good in God's sight. That doesn't mean he can't do natural things, show natural affections and so on, but it means that in performing them, he cannot do good in God's sight. The judgment of the living God in Romans 3, and and that's a reflection of Psalm 53 and Psalm 14, the judgment of the living God is there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. 
Romans 14, verse 23. Can the scriptures be more clear? You say, what is good? Well, the catechism is going to come to that later in Lord's Day 32, but it's the perfect keeping of the law of God, which law is to love me with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. To love God in all that we do, to be motivated by the love of God in all that we do, that's good and nothing else. All that's not of the love of God, no matter how how charitable and beautiful it might appear outwardly, is evil. That's God's judgment of the human race, you and me included. We might be honest in our business dealings, We might be friendly neighbors. We might refrain from drunkenness and cursing and foul language. We might even attend church regularly and give liberally to charity. But apart from the new life in Christ, all we do is is sin. All sin. Apart from the life of Christ. Because in all that we do, we seek ourselves and not God. And all our works are a foul-smelling stench in God's nostril. That's what he says of us, of every one of us. Every person has a different capacity to sin. God places us in different positions, gives us different gifts, different responsibilities in life. Men differ as to character and power and place in society and gifts and talents and whether they are refined or uncouth in their sinning. But every person is a branch in the organism of the human race, fallen in Adam. How can that be? To that question, the Catechism shows from Scripture there's a common organic guilt and a common organic corruption in the human race. In other words, the scriptures deny all individualism. doesn't deny individuality or personality. It denies individualism. And that's why the world and we, as we are by nature, want nothing to do with this word of God. 
Our age reveals the root of this sin of self-seeking and the pride of individualism perhaps more than any other age. The women's liberation movement is individualism. The cry, I have my rights, is individualism. My body is mine. Individualism. to build an idol of self. I will do my own thing. It's individualism. The heart of individualism is that everyone claims to be his or her own God, his or her own master. And that because Man will not acknowledge God as his master and denies organic corruption. What do I have to do with Adam's violation of God's law? I won't be responsible for Adam. No man can hold me responsible for what another did Besides, if my nature was corrupted in the first man, then I'm not responsible for that nature, nor anything I do in that nature. That's the speech of rebellious, individualistic, sinful man. Does that speech ring true? Is that true? that I am not responsible for the fact that I am conceived and born in sin. Born with a sinful nature. The instructor says, the depravity of human nature comes from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, hence our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. And that's what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 5. The Apostle says in verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Furthermore, death reigns over all even over over them who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, even over babies who have not yet committed any actual sins. Little babies are born dead in sin. If they're not responsible, how can death reign over them? You see, to understand that, we have to realize there's more than just individual responsibility. There is a moral, ethical responsibility which causes us to be responsible for what others do. And that's true in everyday life. If President Biden should declare war 
the whole nation, you and I included, would be at war, whether it's a just war or not. We all bear corporate responsibility. If I, as a pastor, preach false doctrine and you tolerate it, you bear the direct result of that sin. See, we all bear that corporate responsibility. God says, love me in all that you do, but all that you are. When my brother walks in sin and I know it, I'm responsible for the attitude that I take over against that sin. If I agree with that sin or talk about it to my neighbor and not to the brother, I bear the guilt for that sin. And so in all of life, there's that corporate responsibility. So let me try to make that very concrete for you young people. And let me say this particularly to our young people who've recently entered the workforce, or even who might receive, even our children who might receive an allowance of some kind for work that you do around the house. God gives you the responsibility of being faithful stewards of his possessions. Remember, everything belongs to God. So you have an individual responsibility, but you bear that responsibility as members of of a corporation, of a congregation in this case. And God says, I've placed you in this particular congregation of my people. Now all around you are the pleasures of the world. Cars and houses and clothing and activities of every kind. What are you going to do with that money that you've earned? It's easy to say, especially when we're single, I'll do what I want with that money. I want this toy and that toy. I want, I need. The adults can pay for the church and school. It isn't so easy to say, Lord, thou hast given me everything. The first thing I would do is show my thankfulness to thee for all that thou hast given me in Christ Jesus. The point I make is that we all bear responsibility, a corporate responsibility before God for the church and for each other. So scripture teaches us that Adam was responsible not merely for himself. 
He stood as the representative head of the whole human race and was responsible for all. That whole human race stands legally as one great corporation with Adam as the head. Adam was responsible before all. So that's precisely the point in Romans 5, verses 12 and following. All are dead in Adam. Why? Because all are legally one with Adam. The guilt of Adam is imputed to the whole human race because we're legally, corporately in him. That's scripture, and it's not without danger that we deny that. The moment you cut off this common responsibility, the moment you reject this covenantal, organic approach, at that moment you cut off all possibility for a substitutionary atonement. And it's this important truth that separates us from our Baptist brethren, even Reformed Baptists. The Baptist is individualistic in his theology. And it's because of that individualism and the lack of understanding the covenant and the organic conception of the church, as Scripture teaches us, that the Baptist sooner or later must concede and fall away from the scriptural truth set forth in the five points of Calvinism. The truth set forth in our canons of Dort. Because without a corporate, Covenantal approach, you can't understand the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness or the doctrine of original sin. All are guilty in Adam. But the catechism ignores the legal solidarity of the human race and from its experiential approach considers the common unity of the race, the organic unity of the human race. The fact that the human nature is corrupt receives all the attention. When Adam fell and became guilty, he became subject to death, and as the punishment for his guilt, death permeated his nature, and that's transmitted in the act of generation and conception and birth. A corrupt stock brings forth a corrupt offspring. The Catechism again says nothing beyond the testimony of God himself. It humbles us. It brings us low. We are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. That's not flattery. And sinful man will come up with argument after argument to show that that's not true. But God writes his judgment upon the work of every person condemned. 
Do you believe that? Do you know that to be your misery? You answer yes to that question. It can only be because you have an only comfort in life and death. You are the recipient of that gift of regenerating grace, which is the only exception to the condemnation which is our just reward and which belongs to us by nature. To you has been imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's yours in the way of repentance and by faith. For as in Adam all die, that is all who are counted in him, the whole human race, so even so in Christ shall all, that is all who are counted in him, the elect, be made alive. And life is yours when you confess before God the sinfulness of your sin and repent and lay hold of Him who alone is our comfort in life and death, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we grieve our sinfulness. And there are sins that have marred our lives that we confess before Thee. Sins of thought, word, and deed. We pray that Thou wilt forgive us but forgive us also the sinfulness of our natures. We come to Thee as those in whom Thou hast worked by Thy Holy Spirit, and we lay hold of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is ours, and we are His. Cleanse us, sanctify us, and receive us in him. Amen.